This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is In the Workplace on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here are Professor Peter Capelli and Dan O'Mara. Hey, folks, welcome back. You're in the workplace. I'm Peter Capelli. I'm Dan O'Hara. I'm a professor of management here at the Wharton School. And I'm adjunct faculty here at the Wharton School and a partner at Ogletree Deacons in Philadelphia. So we're going to start out by talking about analytics in the workplace. It's a pleasure to have back with us Dan Shapiro, who's the vice president of Talent Solutions Careers and Learning at LinkedIn. Dan, welcome back. How are you? Great to be here. We're great, Dan. Uh, Tell me, first of all, how'd you get such a long title? Did you have to bump off other people at LinkedIn and take over their territory? Was it vicious infighting, or what happened there? (laughs) No, it's it's a wonderful role. Uh, You know, I've always been passionate about how people find their full potential at work, and getting a chance to help, you know, companies recruit people, help people find their dream jobs, Mm -hmm. and helping everyone find new skills to make them better. It's just, it's just a wonderful space to operate. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess part of this title reflects the fact that for you folks, these things are integrated. Talent solutions on the employer side, careers on the employee side, right? So there's a logic to yeah, the title. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, to some extent, it's a marketplace. You know, how mm-hmm. it's not about companies finding people or people finding jobs. It's really about how the world comes together to, to find the right paths for individuals and organizations. And, and also, you know, it reflects the idea that companies are increasingly thinking about uh, skills as a multifaceted challenge. You know, we find that uh, a recent PwC survey suggests that 77% of CEOs said that their biggest threat in their business is lack of availability of key skills. And, you know, there are many ways to, to approach that from a hiring perspective, from a learning and development perspective. So we try to look at the whole thing as a single problem. Mm-hmm. And I hear you have a new uh, report out. And just to uh, to suck up, I quoted your last one extensively in something uh, that I wrote for The Wall Street Journal, which will be out on October 27th, uh, in case anybody wants to mark that on their calendar <laughs> about hiring. So what's the new one about? Yeah, we have a report um, called The Rise of Analytics in HR, and one of the beautiful things about LinkedIn when we want to talk about a trend is we, we have access to so much information about how new organizational trends, new roles, new skills are permeating through the global workforce. And what we've found is that there's a, uh, a fundamental uh, increase in the amount of and analytical talent that's being um, deployed in HR. Hmm. Uh, if, if you think back maybe 10 years ago in HR, there was a huge trend for companies that were realizing the talent brand mattered. You know, recruiting organizations started hiring marketers, really investing in brand skills because they wanted to convince the world that they were a great place to work. Uh, and the same exact kind of trend is happening in analytics. And you know, one of the things that we track is how often people put certain kinds of skills on their profiles. And we found that over hmm. the last few years alone, the amount that people are putting analytics in their skills as HR professionals has tripled, mm-hmm. which is really amazing to see. Um, and I think it reflects just how much how much velocity there is going on in this trend. Yeah. And any statistician who is smart has changed their title to analytics. Uh, exactly. Because, <laughs> because literally they are paid a lot more. People who do data analytics are paid a lot more than people who do statistics. And they each can do each other's work, mm-hmm. more or less. So it's, uh, it is an interesting thing. Uh, so, Dan, I should say, both to Dan S. and Dan, Dan O. here, uh, that I am now deeply into this topic. We had a, a meeting here 
uh, at Wharton this week with uh, people who do data analytics for human resource, about 20 companies, and we had our data science faculty, uh, at least several of them, uh, from Penn in the engineering school, huddle up to talk for a day about what's going on. So so I am deeply into this um, topic now. But so are you able to discuss it without using the term big data? HR does not usually have big data. Okay. Now, that is a misnomer, right? And yeah. it is a challenge for HR because uh, a lot of these techniques of analytics require pretty big data sets. Mm-hmm. And, you know, most companies don't have enough employees. And even if they got... And and if they have enough uh, recruits, you know, they often don't have enough data points, you know, on them over time to make this work. They got thousands maybe, sure. but big data is usually millions, so you, right? You, you just got away with it until you use the term big data right there. I was going to say, so you can discuss it without using the term <laughs> mm, big data. Mm-hmm. Trick you. Oh, boy, Dan. Is that work in court? Is that, <laughs> Actually, is that how you, you litigate? Yeah. <laughs> Do you yell gotcha in court? <laughs> no, you just laugh a little. <laughs> okay. All right, Dan S., back to you. So tell us, what did you guys find? So one of the things we know is the term is certainly popping up and more people seem to be using it because it seems like there's interest on it on the employer side. What are you seeing in terms of actual action? What are companies doing? Yeah, well, it's a trend that we see um, pretty pervasively around the world. And and like most trends, it's starting in the industries where uh, talent is is viewed by the C-suite as the fundamental competitive advantage. Mm -hmm. If if I look back at the last 20 years, there's increasingly the belief across leading companies that, you know, people is how you win in your markets. And, and as a result, what we're finding is that the, the questions that CEOs and their executive teams are asking of HR are getting increasingly sophisticated. And historically, oh. those questions have been really hard to answer because okay. the systems that HR deploys, uh, they don't talk to each other. They don't always have clean data. That data right. is not always maintained and up to date. And it's hard to stitch together into a coherent story. Right. And what you're finding is that HR teams all over, all over the world are really getting serious about addressing the availability of data to solve and address some of these key questions. Um, and it, it's one of those things where the, uh, the appetite to figure it out is much larger than where we currently are. There's only about, uh, about 20% of companies in North America say that they have a, uh, a software platform to deliver HR analytics in a way that answers key questions. Yeah. Uh, and yet over 70% of organizations say that it's a priority. So yeah, I think we're okay. at that very early stage of yeah. market recognition that there's something okay. here, but we have a long way to go. Okay. Uh, so Dan asks, l- let me take a shot at explaining for people who are not deep into this stuff um, what is going on and why it matters. And you can jump in whenever you want and correct me. Okay. So uh, first, people often wonder, what are we talking about when we talk about analytics, right? What's the difference? Uh, and it has to do with the term algorithm. And here's basically it. So in the old days, if you were an employer and you were interested in hiring, you might say to your psychologist, uh, what do we know about which variables or which factors or which characteristics of employees predict who's going to be good? And they'd say, well, let's look at things we think we know um, matter. One of them might be, let's say, IQ. So they would look to see whether there's a relationship between IQ and job performance measured something like performance appraisal scores. And they give you an answer that says yes, and typically they're worried about whether the answer is statistically significant or not. And how big it is, often they didn't worry much about that. And one of the little secrets of this world is 
often a lot of the things that they were using because they thought they mattered didn't explain much of anything about actual variation in job performance. The data science people do something quite different, and particularly people who use machine learning. And so what they would do is they would say, tell me a bunch of things you know about uh, candidates. If we're going to try to predict who hired, who, who is a good person to hire, tell me a bunch of things you know about them. And what I'm going to do is take the data on those people and their job performance, and I'm going to try to build a model that fits them together. And I might have seven or eight things that I'm interested in. Maybe it's IQ. Maybe it's where they live. Maybe it's uh, demographics. Maybe it's their education. Whatever. And they roll these into one ball, not eight separate hypotheses, but one. And they roll it together, and they get a model that fits the data pretty well. That is, it fits the performance of these different people, who's high, who's low, explains that pretty well. That model is the algorithm. And after that, you can then go back to the employer and say, okay, here's your model. Uh, give me a candidate. We'll plug in the data for that person, and I'll tell you how well they fit that model, right? So the difference is when we're talking about analytics, we're usually talking about processes that generate these algorithms. So you're not getting a bunch of little stories about this works, that works from a psychologist. You're getting here's our bundle and here's how it works overall. How am I doing so far, Dan? Yeah, I, I think that um, I think you're, you, the thing that you're, you're keying in on is that this new information allows us to have better predictions around who's going to be a great fit. Um, I think those kinds of things are what the most advanced companies are doing. Um, I would also say that for many companies, analytics starts with much simpler questions than you're describing. Um, even being able to answer things like, um, "Do how many people at my own company have machine learning as a skill? Most companies struggle to answer those questions. Mm -hmm. And so for most organizations, it starts with the simple things like, what does my employee base look like? Um, how does retention vary across the key constituencies uh, or the key skills that I have? Are my employees happy? Um, when they're happy, do they perform better? Um, so it, it typically starts with an internal view, and then, and then many companies start to enhance that with an external view of how do I compare to other benchmark companies? Um, does my organization look similar to theirs? Mm -hmm. And for the first time, some of this data is becoming available to organizations through things like LinkedIn and, and elsewhere. Um, and then the most sophisticated companies are figuring out how to use all of this data to be more predictive, to go beyond asking what is, to predict how to improve their processes through information. And, and, and the biggest problem that they're, they're tending to focus on is evaluating candidates. You know, the Internet has moved us to a world where um, – any given job could have thousands of potential applicants, and the process of figuring out which 10 to really spend time with to make a hire can be incredibly time-consuming. And when you, when you enhance it with some of this information, you can massively improve efficiency in the process, and, and you're mm -hmm. much more likely to hire both an, um, make an unbiased selection and also hire um, you know, the, the right person. Mm -hmm. uh, now, some of this, Dan asks, though, uh, has been going on forever, right? So in the 1940s, I think, or early 50s, there used to be something called the Mayflower Group. Dan, did you ever hear that? No. The Mayflower Group was a group of big companies that used to swap data back and forth on their employee attitude surveys. 
Uh, so they were benchmarking with each other on turnover, absenteeism, and all that kind of stuff, wow. right? So a lot of this has been around for a long time. And the interesting thing I find about this, and here's a question for Dan O'Mara because Dan Shapiro, I think Dan O'Mara is older than you are. Um, uh, and this is a history question. Uh, so if you went back like to the 1950s through the 70s on college recruiting, if a company uh, wanted to identify you as a candidate and wanted to take you seriously, they would fly you out to headquarters and they would do long interviews with yes. you. I mean, they would give you personality tests, IQ tests, interviews with psychiatrists, in-basket tests, all that sort of mm -hmm. stuff. And then it all died. Why do you think it died? And this is not a trick question because I'm not sure I know the answer. I think is uh, the expected tenure of a new hire dropped. Companies were less picky about their new hires, okay, were they... less willing to invest in training them, and less willing to invest in picking the right people. Okay, so it just didn't pay off to make that kind of investment anymore. Correct. Yeah. And I think one of the things that happened as well is their ability to tell what they're doing, is it working or not, mm -hmm. goes out the door, right? So um, this is back. Offer, uh... Go ahead, Dan. I, would say, I think there's another angle, which I think is interesting, which is roles are becoming much more specialized. And so when you talk to recruiters about one of the biggest challenges they have, gone are the days of fairly generic roles that are then applied broadly across the business. You know, uh, role requirements are getting incredibly specific. And really? part of that's being driven by the availability of data. Hiring managers think that they can be specific mm. when they make a request. And so you, if you go back to your early comments around how do you build a model? Uh, uh, while, while, Dan, you were getting your signal back, l let me say that both Dan, Omer, and I are a little surprised by that because we've been hearing for years about broadening job um, descriptions, broadening requirements, more fluid movement of people back and forth into teams, into projects, that sort of stuff. So when you say the jobs are getting more specific, what, what do you mean by that? I think both of those things are true. So on one hand, I think uh, people come into companies in a role that is much more narrowly defined okay. than it used to be. Yeah. If you, yeah. if you, if you yeah. talk to the hiring manager about what they want, they want someone who's tailor-made to the role that that person's coming into, the project that they're coming into, right. and their expectations of the training required have gone way down. That's they right. want that person ready on day one. Right. I yeah. think that's right. And then right. 18 months later, yeah. that person's finding a new role at the company. Yeah, so that sounds right. So, happening. yeah, they're not going to train you, so they want you to have, you know, it to be exactly perfectly able to step into that role. But Dan uh, Shapiro, but, but, do you— I was going to say, so, so in other words, in baseball terminology, they're not hiring the best athlete. They want a third baseman who hits left-handed. Yeah, right. And uh, Dan Shapiro, though, isn't it getting pretty hard to do that, to be that picky anymore, given the labor market is tight? Uh, I think it's a supply and uh, demand problem. So the business is demanding specificity. Yeah, but can they find it? is trying to fight with the best things that they have based on what's okay. available. So it's, okay. they're getting squeezed from both sides. Okay. Uh, folks, we're talking with Dan Shapiro, who's the Vice President of Talent Solutions, Careers and Learning at LinkedIn, about their new research on analytics in human resources. So, uh, Dan Shapiro, what are you seeing as the most common things that companies are doing? So they're trying to, you know, they're talking more about it. This is a skill that's important. What are they actually doing that's different than maybe it was a few years ago? Yeah, I would put it in three categories. I think the first is taking a look at their own employee base and understanding the makeup of the skills that they have. 
Okay. Um, in right. many organizations, that data is hard to come by. Yeah. And if if you ask a question of a CEO, do you feel like you're prepared with the skills you have today to execute the business strategy that you've agreed to? They don't have clear answers to those yeah. questions. So, so I can I just uh, stop you on that one? Uh, both Dan's yeah. now. Here's a question. So we were talking about this with a group of companies um, this week. And one of the things I found surprising is they said it was hard to get employees to fill out those forms that would say, you know, just ask questions like, what are you good at? You know, what sort of programming languages you do, et cetera, et cetera. And they were saying it was hard to get people to fill those out. Are you, are you both, I was surprised by that. Are you guys surprised by that? For an existing employee? Yeah. 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 I'm surprised. Yeah, I'm surprised yeah. as well. It, 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 I've talked to companies all over the world. They share the same the same conclusion from their own efforts. And oftentimes the question of what's in it for the employee to go through that effort is unclear. Mm. Um, one of the things that LinkedIn has been able to provide is a platform where it's in people's best interests to publicly showcase what they're capable of mm-hmm. um, from a reputation okay. perspective, from a career perspective. And yeah. so many companies think of us as that platform. Okay. That's uh, that, that's interesting. I, I must say I'm puzzled that uh, companies can't require this. Um, you know, just fill out the form. They require them to fill out all kinds of stuff. I think they can, but maybe they're they're reluctant to be too pushy. Why though? If it's important to them, oh, the little millennials say, "Oh, I'm going to work somewhere else where I don't oh, have to you fill think, out really? that form." You think they're afraid? No, of there, there's nothing that's undermined. Mm-hmm. An employer's authority to give out uh, work orders to yeah, employees, right. including fill out this form. Yeah, interesting. So, uh, Dan Shapiro, what's the most uh, sophisticated stuff you're seeing? You don't have to name names, but if you want to, dish name names. <laughs> what are you seeing? <laughs> what are you seeing that's sophisticated out there? Yeah, I think I think um, there's a wide range of things uh, in some companies. Uh, decisions about where to open office locations based on needing newfound skills, okay. something that is yeah. now getting an incredible amount of rigor. Okay. Um, opening up new talent pools when you're trying to sort of solve diversity problems. How do I think about hmm. if you want to hire engineers for um, that have a, a greater gender balance, you may need to look at industries outside of the ones you typically recruit from. Where are those people? How okay. do I how do I tap into that that audience? Okay. Um, and then all the way down to uh, the things we talked earlier about candidate selection. There's a ton of research uh, that's going into how do we use the signals about a candidate to know who to spend time with, to know who's really capable of the job. And I'd say the most sophisticated efforts are not just in assessing capability, but assessing potential. Um, how do we start to understand not just what someone knows, but what they might be able to contribute in the future? Right. And you seen anybody who doing doing anything which looks good in that? I see a lot of places, particularly vendors, talking about it. But have you seen anything you think is credible? Yeah. The the holy grail here is a model where you can look across the entire population of of companies and really understand how to make an amazing fit between a candidate and a company. Yeah. And and no one's hit that holy grail. Most of the companies are adopting purpose fit models to their organization. You know, they're they're able to look at their own employees yeah. um, and assess what are the things that factor in. And there's a bunch of organizations that are really investing heavily in that. Unilever is a good example. Um, Google's put a bunch of time into this. Um, but but the idea of a generic model that can start to match people with their best fit role is something that, that lots of companies, including LinkedIn, are spending mm-hmm. a lot of time on. Uh, and Dan can tell you why that is important to be able to do it only in, in your own company. Say again? Uh, Dan can tell us why it's important to have these prediction models that fit your own company as opposed to gener- using generic ones. 
if you get sued. Can I help you here with my junior lawyer, Mary? Yeah, sure. Go ahead. So if uh, you get a charge that you have adverse impact, Mm -hmm. right, the defense is that your techniques for hiring predict who's good. Yeah, in exactly your workplace. Right. Exactly. Right. Right. So I did I get a brownie. I get a brownie. Yes, point you for do. That. You get you get two merit badges, yeah. and you taught me to pay more attention. There you go. Uh, there's a, there's a small lesson there, uh, Dan. When you look in the future, Dan Shapiro, what do you see happening next? So there's I think we agree. And by the way, I was hearing much the same thing from employers that they're interested in this, but they're not good at it yet. And yep. Um, the big problem, which surprises people, so here's the thing that might surprise a lot of people, right? So we're talking to companies about um, sophisticated machine learning technology, and a lot of these folks who are doing this stuff have PhDs and this kind of stuff, right? And we're asking them the question about, you know, how do you link data sets? And you know what virtually everybody said the tool was they use for this? What? Excel. Right, mm-hmm. so they're using these really sophisticated uh, software programs to manage big data, uh, but then when a push comes to shove, they got to use Excel to put these data sets together because they got no other way to do it, and they're so incompatible. Yeah. So, what do you think? Looking out just a little bit, Dan Shapiro, what do you think we're going to start to see here? Where's the next push coming from? I think we're going to see it in two big areas. The first is that HR teams have been relying on a view of their own data um, as the primary source of information to make big talent decisions. And I think for the first time, they're going to be able to start to tap into data sets that exist outside of the walls of their organization to understand how they're performing, how they're competing, and what the talent pool looks like around the world in a way that wasn't possible before. Uh, And I think that's going to change Uh, the kinds of questions that they're able to answer. And it's going to ultimately mean that they're going to be pulled into executive conversations to guide the company strategy. Because almost every company strategy now is is a people-based strategy. Mm -hmm. It is we can outperform the competition based on who we have and how Mm -hmm. we operate as a group. Mm -hmm. Do you think... Go ahead. ahead. Go ahead. ahead. Oh, I was going to say the second is is the, the natural phasing of any major analytics work where it starts as a small group of people in a centralized team with really advanced skills doing the work. And I think that's going to shift to a massive democratization of these insights. We're going to get to a place where every talent professional, every recruiter, and every company is using this kind of information on a daily basis to make choices. Mm -hmm. And it's really a question of of how we can make these tools simple, how we can make the insights straightforward, and how we can put them in context. But but we're going to be in a place where every every HR professional has has um, analytics as part of what they do. Yeah, I think uh, it's going to require some different skills or some big, big uh, improvements in the usability of the software, probably. But you know, yeah. that's where there's a lot of money going into this to make that happen. Well, so, yeah. I mean, our experience is that the problem is purely on the product side. That that you know, these products went built with usability in mind. Have right. um, I'll give you an example. We, we have a product called LinkedIn Recruiter, which is used by hundreds of thousands of um, of recruiters all over the world. They're used to it. They've learned it very quickly. Um, we have an analytics product that that we uh, we launched last week, and uh, we built the UX to mirror how they're used to using our recruiter product. And so anyone that knows how to use Recruiter can get insights from this product. And mm-hmm. we found that there really wasn't the need to have a deep history in analytics as a discipline. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. That's good. 
Dan, thanks very much for being with us. Uh, we'll look forward to reading the report, and folks who want it, I'm sure, can find it on your website. And uh, we'll be checking back in and seeing how all this stuff plays out in just a minute. And I got a question for you, Dan sure. O'Mara. So, um, one of the things I find so interesting about this data analytics stuff is that it doesn't seem to neatly map onto employment law. So let me no, it doesn't. give you an example, right? So suppose I have built this machine learning model, mm -hmm. and uh, this is the algorithm we're going to use to hire. And in this algorithm, there's 10 variables. And um, uh, somebody suggests uh, to a plaintiff's attorney that mm -hmm. this uh, algorithm systematically discriminates against some protected group. Mm -hmm. And the company says, no, it doesn't. Um, but um, if you take that algorithm and you look at what's in it, the variables, some of them start to see pretty suspect, right? Mm -hmm. Like it might be something like, where's your house, right? Yeah. Almost random. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Or things that sound like they're correlated with your income, and that might be correlated with your race and stuff like that, right? Or what zip code you grew up in. What zip code you grew up in as yeah. well as where you live, right? So, and that stuff, and here's the thing about it, some of that stuff really might predict, right? But some of that stuff really might have adverse impact as well, yeah. right? Um, what do you think a court would do with that? You say, okay, we got this model. In there is a bunch of stuff, but some of that stuff looks pretty suspect, doesn't seem to fit the usual way they look at these things, right? Yeah, if an employer has a utilizes a tool like that, and a plaintiff's lawyer takes the case and advances it and finds through expert witnesses, and it takes some investment by the plaintiff's lawyer, it's not yeah. just a throw it against the wall, finds uh, through expert witnesses that it this tool does deselect various protected groups in a statistically significant way. As a practical and legal matter, the ball shifts to the employer's court to prove that this is job-related, understandably job-related. Mm -hmm. and, and for that reason, I would advise all employers to never go with what I'll call black box approach. Mm -hmm. so you have some really impressive experts, some outside consultants says, I have a black box. Here's, let me do it. And Well, what's inside it? How is it really going to be picking uh, people? Well, you're just going to have to trust me. Okay, yeah. I'll trust you. Mm -hmm. That employer could be in trouble because mm -hmm. it's making employment decisions based on factors it doesn't even know. Yeah. And if the if, vendor says, oh, it works, that means nothing. Exactly. Um, <laughs> and now, on the other hand, if an employer says, okay, you got this quirky model, let me understand the various components and how each one relate, or even as a collective, how they relate to job performance. Mm -hmm. Much more defendable, even mm -hmm. if the, the the things are a little bit quirky. It takes me back to the days where I was on TV and other places about personality testing in the workplace oh, yes. or various integrity testing in the Coming workplace. Coming up next, by the way. Go ahead. Oh. Yep. And um, in that case, a lot of employers from these PhDs would buy these tests that would ask questions, well, what's your favorite color? Um, yep. uh, are you afraid of deep water? Mm -hmm. Things like that. That well, I'm looking at them. I'm like, how could this correlate to job performance? Mm -hmm. And often it didn't. Uh, the employers are convinced it did, mm -hmm. and they got sued and had to pay out millions of dollars because they were trusting the outside experts. And uh, frankly, you know, a lot of these questions didn't make a lot of sense to mm -hmm. begin with. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and I, I think the, the complicated part, if you're on the defense side of this, is that some of these algorithms, um, the only thing that uh, you can really say about how the variables go together is th that this is what fits the data. There's no particular argument as to why it should work. Yeah. There's no necessarily body of research behind why it should work. And how it fits together is completely idiosyncratic to the data. So which of these five variables is the most important? Well, we didn't know going in, but it looks like this, you know, this one fits yeah. the data. So I think, and it could be that, you know, some of the ones one by one don't predict very much, but only in the context of this kind of messy yeah. model does it uh, does it predict anything. Yeah, this is a, uh, we'll talk more about this maybe after the break, but this is a really um, interesting prob set of problems with data analytic. I think it's the most important stuff about it because in many ways what it does is not any different than what psychologists used to do in the workplace. They're trying to predict who's going to be a good performer. Yeah. They're using the same kind of data that they used before. The only difference is rather than testing it one by one, okay, I predict IQ predicts this much, personality predicts that much, the data scientists are rolling it up all into a ball and they're getting one model and they're telling you this model, these data in this combination unique to our algorithm predicts this much of the variation. That's yeah. what's different. Yeah. That's it. And by the way, anything that's predicated on a multiple regression analysis, do I have that term right? Where, you know, this mm -hmm. is this accounts for point four and this accounts mm -hmm. for point twelve is to me suspect because if I recall my Wharton education, uh, multiple regression analysis are amenable to manipulation in a way that a straight line analysis might not be. If you have something that accounts for 42% of the correlation and you put another factor in there very similar to it, they might both deflate down to 6%. Uh, yeah, the, that's called collinearity for those of you who have your statistics books open at home. Uh, and they're not, I think, another way to put what Dan is saying. By the way, you get a half a merit badge for Thir that, Dan. 30 years later, I still remember very, pretty good, huh? Very good. I get a half a merit badge. Is that these models might not be particularly robust. And robust means if you play around with them, can you make the results change a lot? And the answer is typically yes. Um, the surprising thing about the way these uh, analyses used to be done, though, is that they didn't do multiple regression. They did one at a time. Okay. And the problem with doing that is they would say, okay, personality predicts this much, IQ predicts this much. But then what happens when you use them together? You don't sum the effect. So if personality predicts 20% and IQ predicts 30%, that doesn't mean you're going to get a 55% explanation by using both. You you might only get 22%, you know. Uh, you might not gain much at all by combining them, mm -hmm. right? And so the the problem is we really need to look at what you're actually doing, not what conceptually you could be doing. Machine learning is better in that regard because they're saying here's the whole enchilada, use the whole thing, don't take it apart, and here's how much it's going to By explain. the way, what do we mean by machine learning? So machine learning is a particular statistical technique, you might think, uh, and here's how it works. You take a data set, you split it up into three bits, and for the first bit – you say, let's see if we can find the relationship between whatever the variables are we care about, it, predicting, characteristic of the person, and then let's look at job performance over there, okay, on the other side of this. And what we're going to try to do is arrange, let's say, the intensity of the weights, the importance of the different independent variables in a way to try to perfectly, or come as close as we can, predict the ups and downs of performance across people. 
So we're trying to fit a model to the data. We're not testing hypotheses. Mm -hmm. We're just playing around with it to see if we can fit the data. The, the second third of the model you're then going to use to kind of test it to see, okay, now let's look at another part of the data and see how well it actually performs. And then the third part you would actually use to predict, right? Okay. So you split them up that way. And so if you're actually doing this, you can see why you need pretty big data sets to do this because you're not using the same one great big data set for okay. everything, right? Uh, and the learning part is it's a little... Um, nonsensical, right? Because the machine isn't learning anything. Uh, it's software that's doing stuff, and the software isn't really learning anything. You're just playing around with it in order to try to get um, the best prediction that you can, the best fit. We're going to take a break right now. We're going to come back and talk about more of this in the context of a particular example to match people to jobs in just a minute. Out here the nights are Hey, folks, I don't want to cut Bruce off, but we should start talking here. I'm Peter Capelli. I'm Dan O'Meara. And this is In the Workplace on uh, Sirius XM Channel 132. But you know that because it's lit up on your dial already. This is the Data Analytics Hour of the show, apparently, because we're going to talk about that. Uh, we talked about that in the first half hour. We're going to do more of it right now. We're going to talk about... Uh, where most of the engine, most of the interest is, and most of the energy, and that is around questions about hiring. And with us to help us think through this a little more is Claire McTaggart, who is the founder and CEO of a company called Square Peg that does this kind of work. She's going to tell us about it. Claire, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. So, Claire, what is Square Peg? Sure. So, Square Peg is a, a hiring platform that helps companies find and hire talent in a more comprehensive and data-driven way than just a typical resume review. So okay. I'm excited to talk about this because listening to um, sort of <coughs> some of the conversation with your previous guest, you know, we do use psychometric and other types of assessment. We do use matching algorithms and we do use machine learning. So um, I'm excited to sort of delve into to some of those, de those details. Okay, you got the trifecta here. First, where'd you come for, up with the name Square Peg? Why, why was that a good fit? Yeah, Ooh, so I mean, square peg, it was sort of the first name that came to me, you know, trying to fit a, a when you think about peg fit. in a round hole. Exactly. Yeah. And what we are trying to do is think about fit, everything that we can sort of assess and measure, um, whether it is soft skills, environment fit, hard skills, um, to help people figure out what job that they should go to next and to help companies figure out in a more <coughs> data-driven way who okay. are the right people that they should hire. Okay, so it's not square peg. We're trying to make sure you're not a square peg, right? <laughs> right. In a round yeah. hole. Anyway, square peg in a square hole, that would work. Very good. Exactly. So yeah. Claire, um, so tell me, what's the problem here? Let's start to back up. For a lot of people, um, it's amazing well, maybe it's not so amazing how few people know what's actually going on in hiring these days. Uh, labor market's tight. There's lots of people trying to hire. Um, and they got to go through lots of candidates now because people are turning them down rather than the other way around. So w what is it that employers are complaining about? Uh, otherwise, there probably wouldn't be a demand for what you're doing. What do you hear from employers? What do they say their headache is? Sure. So I, I think there are a few things. The first is that there is just a lot of noise today uh, with online job boards. You know, if you post your job description on a LinkedIn or any other job board or on your company website, you're getting thousands and thousands of applicants who are also applying to tons of other jobs. Right. So there's lots of noise going on and it's very 
difficult for any human to go through all of those applications. So we rely on applicant tracking systems or keyword matching. So, you know, a very minimal amount of data to make what you would think would be a very big decision. Mm -hmm. So there's one aspect, it's just too much work to sort and search and filter than humans can do really well. And the second thing is, you just don't have that much data to be able to make the right decisions. You only have a resume in front of you and you've got five seconds for resume. And so how can you make a robust decision on very limited Mm. data sets? Let me ask Dan this question because you may know the answer, Claire, and I want it to be fun because if you know the answer, it's going to be fun. So Dan, how long does a typical recruiter spend looking at a resume? And this comes from a Corn Ferry study recently. And they, let me tell you how they did it. They tracked eyeball movement. Yeah. So they're actually we're doing it pretty carefully. Yeah, five point three seconds. Very close, six seconds. Oh, Very close. I was going to say six, and <laughs> I said no. <laughs> Very close, six seconds per resume. So it is pretty tricky thing, and trying to get better than that. So when they make mistakes, so the first thing is it's hard to process all these applicants, but. Uh, of course, other people say, well, you can just use keyword searches. It does that. Um, so w- what's the problem with that? So they might say, okay, we use a keyword search. We get down from 1,000 applicants to 100, and then we cut it again uh, by looking at them six seconds per look. What, what's Right. Why isn't that so okay? Naturally, the only way that you are able to do that job is through heuristics. So what you're going to do is, one, you know, you're going to do your keyword search, and that's going to probably, you know, limit a bunch of applicants that could have been really great for the job but didn't have the right keywords in their resume. Mm -hmm. So there's your first problem. Your second is that, you know, as humans, we have to rely on all types of biases and heuristics to be able to make quick decisions. And Mm -hmm. so you'll see, uh, oh, I know this school. I know this company. These are big companies. Therefore, this might be the right person. And in reality, it might be that, for this particular sales role, where you went to school might not have much predictive power, but mm-hmm. you know we have to use these heuristics in order to make quick decisions. And so what happens is you get a little bit more bias and you get very quick snap you know, decision making. And then over time, you compound that and you say, you know, people are looking at resumes over and over again. What are we doing with the data of all of the resumes that we discarded and all of the people that we hired and didn't work out? Mm -hmm. How are we using that to get better over time? And this Mm -hmm. is a lot of what SquarePeg's trying to do. We're trying to present much more information on a fewer set of candidates and then track that over time so that you learn Mm -hmm. from, from the way that you make decisions. So are you actually hearing, I mean, it's certainly a good point that uh, bias is a real problem. We're more aware of bias in, in hiring. You can see it all over the place. Are, are companies you're talking to aware of that, or is this just going to be a byproduct of you know, doing this in a more sophisticated way? So companies are aware that they need to solve for bias and diversity issues that sometimes, uh, you know, all of the candidates that end up making it to the final round look the same. And so they're trying to figure out how can we change this. And I think most employers are very much interested in that. The question is, how can you leverage technology to help you? And how can you, you know, you were speaking previously about, you know, some of these algorithms that will roll up into a final score yep. in some black box, some type of number. How can you know that that's the right process? Mm-hmm. Um, and how can you learn from that over time? So what we try to do is bring a lot of data and be very transparent about, you know, here's what we look at. We look at 19 workplace traits. We're very open about what they are. Give us an example think, of what, what a workplace trait is. 
So, so these are behavioral attributes. So we would say strategic thinking, logical thinking, detail orientation, orderliness, okay. innovation, things like that. Okay. And uh, these come through psychometric assessments that have high validity and reliability. So, can I stop yeah. you for a second? Because I think we've lost most people there. So just to, just to back up for a second. So these yeah. are paper and pencil tests or the equivalent? These are um, online. These online are tests. Online assessments. Okay. So yeah. we look at these, these 19 uh, workplace personality traits. And then we also ask questions about fit from both the job seeker side and from the employer side. What so, do you mean by asking them about fit? Whether so they want fit? So we will ask, or... for example, about what type of environment they'll thrive in, whether it's a fast-paced environment. Um, do they like autonomous work? What are the things that, that they are motivated by? What okay. you know, are the incentives that appeal to them? And even things like you know, work-life balance versus a competitive okay. nature. So we get lots of data uh, about you know what that job seeker is looking for, what they're okay. incentivized by, and sort of who they are in addition to all their resume data. Okay. So, so far, uh, this is uh, not too unusual compared to the way things might have worked in a sophisticated company, right? You're collecting a lot of information about the candidate. What happens next? So, and we also collect a lot of information about the employer. So okay. we also assess... Yep their existing sales team, for example, and we identify what are the common traits of some of their top-performing salespeople, or we assess the hiring manager. Okay. Um, And then we use a matching algorithm, which will just show here are, for example, based on skills, here are the top candidates based on, you know, and we don't just do keyword matching. We do sort of a um, ontology-based matching, which just means if you say growth hacker and that person is a digital marketer, we know that those things are relevant. So you're not just screening out based on an actual word match. And so we look at a skills match, an education match, a personality trait match. We look at lots of different indicators and we show that data. We display all of that. There's no black box. And then, you know, we... So you have sort of a, a small batch of candidates that an employer is looking at with lots of data on them. And then you might say, okay, great, I'm interested in these candidates, and you proceed with them. Then what we do is over time, this is how our machine learning algorithm works, we track every candidate that you reject, every candidate that you phone screen, every candidate that you accept. And over time, we start to understand, you know, Mm -hmm. let's say you've brought in 50 people to your sales team, only 10 of them got the job, and only three of them are there a year later. We use all of that data to try to uh, understand, well, maybe what we can see is that education actually doesn't matter that much for the sales role, but it matters a lot for this digital marketing. Can, can I stop you, so, Claire? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> way ahead of us here. I'm getting lost. So just to, just to back up a little bit and slow down, uh, particularly for me and my audience. So what you would do is you say to a client, um, look, we're going to keep track of all this uh, information. So somebody applies and they don't get hired, but you've already got the data on them about their attributes, right? Right. And so, okay, they don't hire, uh, you don't hire them. Do you actually follow those people who don't get hired? Yes, because they have come through our platform. So we will be showing those people lots of different jobs, and we'll be tracking uh, how all companies view them. Okay. And then for both sides, we give them a lot of feedback. So, for example, if there's an employer um, and, you know, we've matched them, let's say, with 50 candidates, and only... Ten of those candidates say that they're actually interested in that job, okay. and all of those ten can, candidates are men. We will tell the employer that, you know, that actually women, are, once they see the job description, even though it is a high match, they're mm-hmm. not interested in this job. Or for a candidate, we'll say, 
you know, most employers are passing on you, and it's because they don't think that you're a skills fit. And for the companies that you're applying to, here are the skills that they're looking for. Okay. Do, can you, do you actually ask the candidates why they pass on them, or are you just we do. looking so at them? Oh, on, okay. on our platform, every candidate that you connect with or pass, you should say why. Okay. And that's sort of what, what helps our algorithm learn. And um, so it ha- we do that for both the employers and for the candidates, because I think transparency is one of the things you don't have a lot of with, with the modern-day job board. Yep. You don't know why people make the decisions uh, that they do. All right. So uh, in, in this um, approach, you sort of ha- re- rely on getting lots of people to use your platform, right, particularly right. on the applicant side. How do you entice them to come to you? Yeah, so on the job seeker side, anybody that comes to SquarePeg, they take the assessment. We give them all of their data back, and we give them their results in a report about themselves. And so they will see, okay, here's how you score relative to other job seekers on all of these traits, and here are the types of roles that might be a good fit for you. So Mm -hmm. they get a lot of information like you would if you, you went and paid to take you know, a psychometric assessment. So they get all of that information. So that's a big driver because it'll help people figure out, you know, maybe you want to leave investment banking, but you're not sure what career might be a good move. You know, okay. you're entrepreneurial and you know that you're good with people. What all are right. some things that, that might be a good fit? So it helps people sort of navigate what their next job might be. So that's mm-hmm. sort of what drives a lot of job seekers to our site is because they feel like they get something out of it okay. rather than just having to do work, uh, you know, just having to apply. And for employers, Instead of just, you know, getting this big pile of resumes, they will get this curated batch of candidates and see actual data on these candidates and and start to try to learn from the way that they make decisions so they can get better over time at that. Okay. So let me ask you a question I'm sure you've heard before and cue Dan up uh, for this one, too. So some people would say, a lot of people would say this, actually. And a lot of people are. Okay, you're building your model uh, around the successful candidates from your client, the successful employees who are currently at your client. A big chunk of those folks are white men, maybe disproportionately so, given historical factors, right? The people who've made it to the top. Now, if there was bias in the workplace, the bias was bigger in the past, so there you go. Past success breeds future success. Well, that's true, and that is uh, something in social science known as the Matthew effect from the Bible, to whom much is given, much is expected, I think. Uh, Cumulative advantage is the name of that. So uh, if that's the case, and maybe, uh, Claire, let me ask Dan first and then uh, about the legal issue here, and then... Uh, ask ask you what you think about this because I'm sure you guys have thought about this. So if that's the case, are you in trouble? Your algorithm is built around um, predicting hiring people who look like the people in your leadership set, and those folks are mainly white people. Well, if your white leadership men. set was selected based upon past privilege, you're in trouble, mm-hmm. it, it, which you implied in your question. If your leadership set was was selected based upon past positive performance. That's another thing. Um, so I get, how do you I, how do you prove one way or the other? Well, on there's a many jobs l- less so in the subjective qualities of senior management, but in terms of a stockbroker, lawyer, a million other things, where mm-hmm. you can get a set of numbers that measure someone's mm-hmm. annual production. And it's strange people don't go from leading the pack to trailing to leading to trailing. However, people typically lead the pack time after time after time. You wouldn't say, would you, that if you looked at the current leaders of law firms, that this does not reflect something about 
hiring patterns in the past, or you think the fact that there are so few women there reflects only the fact that women didn't want to join those firms? Uh, I don't know. Leaders of law firms are of a generation, you know, when when pulling from the law schools, uh, it was it was heavily male at the time. There you go, right? Okay. So there, there's the problem. If, if right? you if you were hiring first year associates based on the data of who's successful in the five to eight year range. Mm-hmm. You get a, a overall demographic pool much like the current pool. Right. And frankly, it would be more precise than if you were looking at the characteristics yep. of senior management right. because it's just a, it's a different skill set. Right. That's true. So Claire, how do you guys address this issue? Yeah. So this is something that we think about and work on all the time. So the first point is, you know, if you have a firm that is majority white men, for example, uh, what you see is a lot more of the new recruits looking like the people in that firm, usually because they rely a lot on referrals. That is one of the main reasons people refer people in their own networks and right. people's own networks look like themselves. So a lot of it is a pipeline issue. You're not getting the candidates in your pipeline right. that are you know, different from the people who work at that firm. And so uh, you're looking to referrals because you're saying, well, I know this person, I can vouch for them. But what if we could provide you know, some type of data on here are some soft skills for this person or here are some background information for this person. They don't have the same network, but, you know, here are some data on why they might succeed in this firm. So what we look at is, you know, performance, absolutely. We don't look and, – and we score um, – or we measure demographic data for all of our job seekers on the board. So if we ever were only referring somebody that was, you know, not representative of our overall pool, we would understand that right away. And uh, so, for example, you know, our pool of candidates is a diverse pool of candidates. And, you know, we are able to help employers that are not getting diverse candidates because we can say, well, you know, for this role, maybe you've been over-relying on certain educational institutions or maybe you've been over-relying on people having to have a certain type of background. You know, what if we try to bring in candidates based on some other attributes and then let's look and see the types of candidates that you get and then let's look and see how these candidates perform. So ultimately what we're trying to do is is broaden, a, a, you know, give them a more diverse pool and just look at performance and merit rather than, you know, do they look the same as the people working there. So uh, we just got about a minute left here. What's the uh, what's next for you guys? Um do you have any new tricks up your sleeve? New? Are you going to go inside firms and help people with promotion decisions? What, what do you What do you expect will so, be next? I think the ultimate frontier in talent acquisition is to try to match sourcing talent sourcing with performance data. I think that is the thing that has been missing. And so we, you know, over the next few months and the next year, we will be doing a lot of work to try to understand how you can take what you learn from performance and help that inform sourcing. Right. Because that's uh, ultimately what you have to do, right, is to show that this practice leads to better performers, not just that it leads to people who look like you're better performers going in. Right? Exactly, yeah, exactly. That's the choice. Claire, great to have you with us. Thanks for yeah, this. It was a pleasure speaking with you. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.